Welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 89 movies, one cage. This is episode 94, Mandy, from 2018. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski, and this is a movie, so now that Mike and I have seen this three times, we've already, spoilers, recorded our revisited of this, our Cage Club revisited, which will come out next Thursday. Couldn't so wait. if you want to watch this movie while we talk to you about it, check that one out. This is our, yeah. hopefully, fingers crossed, smarter, more intellectual, deeper conversation about the movie, but we'll see how it goes. One uh, added note about that revisited, you could go over to Facebook oh, and right. watch us watch the movie. And I you forgot that we did that. Yes. Remember that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so before we introduce our very special guest, we have two little bits of mail. You know, we have an email address here on the show, mailbag at cageclub.me. I think in a weird way, Mike, we are becoming these like this known quantity in a weird corner of the internet as like the cage guys. I'm sure there's a bunch of people like us, yeah. but I think we've reached that kind of point because twice uh-huh. in the last two weeks, we got emails from different people with cool cage stuff that they're selling. They want to mm-hmm. let us know about. One was from Eric Malarkey, who emailed us about Bayman, a Nicolas Cage card game. So he has a Kickstarter called Bayman, a card game, a Nicolas Cage card game. Is it just a cage card game? On the Kickstarter, it says, uh, in parentheses, Nicholas, but a cage card game, a Nicolas Cage card game. It's basically old made with just incredible art of cage characters. And we played it this past weekend at Camp Cage Club, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I yeah. lost, but that does not taint, you know, it does not taint my opinion of the game. I really, really liked it. Yeah, that was a blast. That was a lot of fun. I had not played Old Maid since I was a very young kid. So uh, it was like all new to me again. And just having those, the artwork and those uh, characters from Cage's films was great. It was like, it just kept the game going, made it a lot more fun. Absolutely. So this Kickstarter, it's a little bit shy of its goal, will end on Friday, October 12th at 6 p.m. Eastern. So if you want to go on, you can get a full copy of the game for 15 bucks. Uh, it was a lot of fun. You know, it's, 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 I don't know you can play it by yourself, but you can definitely admire the art by yourself. And mm-hmm. everybody knows how to play Old Main, so that was really cool. I can't wait to get together all again and then play that game again because it's just... It's fun. Yeah, and any cage-related game that you can, you know, play is great, too. There's, you know, that's awesome. Other email that we got was from this guy, John Rooney, who I believe lives in Ireland. He's got johnrooneyillustration.com, instagram.com slash jrooneyillustration. He emailed us a picture of this Nicolas Cage character art, so similar in a way to the Bayman card game. It's a bunch of different... It's every one of Cage's characters, up including and through Mandy, even this animated one. So, like, you know, Speckles is on there, the, the doctor <laughs> from Astro Boy, like, everybody, all of his uh-huh. characters are on there. The caveman from the Croods. Absolutely. <laughs> and he, cre- he penned them all, and I bought a poster... Uh, oh. It just came here. It, it, I wanted it to be here for the, for the camp? Cage Club, but it was not here yeah. yet. It came, I oh. think, oh, maybe it came Saturday, but I didn't get the mail until after everybody left. But anyway, Send it's me a link. Awesome. I need a copy. I didn't know about this. Hit me up. I saw you post it. I wasn't aware that that was a fan that, that shouted it out. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So here, it's, on, it's an link. Etsy thing. Need a copy. John Rooney art. Because, you know, cage art takes priority on the walls. I gotta take something down. I just sent you a link on Facebook, so you can go check that out. But yeah, if you we've Thanks. posted on our Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, I think, links to both this and the Kickstarter. So go check those out. Both really cool cage art. It is, in a way, Mike, you know, it's, it's one of my favorite things. It's people who like Caged as much as we do, you know, expressing it in the way that they do instead of, you know, talking about it on a podcast, they're mm-hmm. drawing it. I think it's really super cool. Yeah, that's terrific. I wish it was... Uh 
better artist, so I could express myself. Hey, man, you got your own fan art for your third time to charm. I, so I do. That's yeah, no, that's that's true. I'm working on it. <laughs> so anyway, today's episode is manual. Thank you both for writing and letting us know about those. Uh, I hope people out there listen to this. I mean, we don't have a huge fan base, but our fan base loves Cage, obviously, and so I think these are two cool things that people will want to own so go check those out if you have your own thing to email us just say hi tell us about mandy whatever email mailbag at cageclub.me that's right cage club the voice of a new generation Ooh, is that coca-cola i thought it was pepsi maybe it's pepsi probably (laughs) pepsi maybe our guest can let us know our guest today has been on i believe three episodes of cage club but not in a while not since the og run going old old school here. He was on one of our early favorites that we never heard of, Birdie. Oh, shout out Birdie, whom he met, Lucky Duck. He was also on one of the biggest Nicolas Cage movies of all time, The Rock. Yes. And he was on one of our later favorite movies that we'd never heard of, (laughs) that even though he thought we were fully engrossed in Stockholm Syndrome by that time, (laughs) you and I have watched that two or three times now, still really enjoy it, Seeking Justice, The Hungry Rabbit Jumps. The Hungry Rabbit Jumps. Still jumping. He is also the (laughs) co-host of the Dead But Not Forgotten Monkey Club, and perhaps a new podcast coming to the Cage Club Podcast Network sometime soon-ish. We're joined by Christian Larson. Hello, Christian. Hi, hi. I don't want to call you Christian. Uh, You can call me whatever you want. Welcome back. Yeah, my God, it's good to be back. When Joey first asked me uh, when he was coming up with the idea of the podcast, he asked, what Nicolas Cage movies would you like to do? And I said, I want to do a really early one that no one's ever heard of. I want to do yep. uh, one of his kind of sad cash grabs, direct video ones. And I want The Rock. Like, that was it. Mm-hmm. Those, <laughs> my, those three are, are still my three favorite episodes of the Cage Club podcast. <laughs> I've listened to every single one at least five times. So, Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, And I think you also said, I also, if he ever does a movie with the guy who did Beyond the Black Rainbow, get me on that episode, too. <laughs> oh, I thought it was more if Bill Duke and Cage ever happened yeah. to team up. If Bill Duke and Put Cage ever team up, I'm back. <laughs> Send up the signal. Well, in reality, this was a fortuitous event that Larson is here with us tonight because we had a guest who is helping to make a show in China right now. He's not involved with Mandy. He just loves the same kind of movies that me and Mike love. I met him at Fantastic Fest. He's a great dude. Uh, you also made a couple movies, so Matt, I don't know if you're listening, but go check out Matt Stewart's video, uh, movies, Rewind, RWD, which is on Amazon, and also check cool. out Tonight She Comes, uh, two movies that he made. I saw the first one. It's pretty cool. So yeah, yeah. definitely good shout out. I'm not bad. I haven't made Dude, no, you're the first alternate. Are you kidding? <laughs> no, because so, so here's what happened. So Matt was going to be on the episode, but he's making a show in China, and he found out today that he no longer gets days off. So Chinese productions, what are you going to do? Yeah, that's how it works. So he's like, I'm so sorry, I can't make it. And then within an hour or two of finding that out, Larson texts me and says, I finally saw Mandy last night. And I was like, boy, do we have a podcast for you to be on. (laughs) Do you want to talk about this tonight? You said, yep, I'll be home by seven. And here we are talking about Mandy, the newest Cage movie, the, what do we figure out, the fifth or sixth, depending if you count Teen Titans, this year? Yeah, this year alone, so, man, he is racking him up this year. He's already, I think, beat his record, but this was definitely one of the most highly anticipated movies, Joey, I think that we've been looking forward to for quite some Absolutely. time, n- not just, like, Cage film, but I think, in general, like, I've really been looking forward to this one. I'm really trying, I'm really wondering, the Cage movies that I'm most looking forward to 
that we haven't seen now are like uh, Prisoners of the Ghost Land, which is his with, I think, Scion Sono. And also, there's another one that I'm really looking forward to. I can't remember. Let me see if I can find a, a look at that. <laughs> but this was one that we were so excited for that we'd heard such good things from festival screenings for like six or eight months. And it finally came out, and you and I had bought tickets to see it in two different draft houses. We bought it uh, tickets to see it in Brooklyn, and we also bought tickets to see it in Yonkers. Returned both of those tickets, and then instead, <laughs> just watch it on demand. You bought it on demand, bought a new TV to watch it. Bought a new TV the day this came out, because I knew some folks were coming over. <laughs> if ever there was a, an excuse to buy a new television... It would be uh, sure. the release of Mandy on demand. Full disclosure, I work in a movie theater that carried Mandy, and uh, I was really excited that a Nicolas Cage movie was playing in a movie theater. You know, there there had been a lot of buzz about this movie. It had played festivals and gotten good response, and, like, you know, I'm sure that has a lot to do with the, the people behind the movie. Like, USS Indianapolis was not playing any film festivals or... Uh, <laughs> and that had uh, Mario Van Peebles directing it, you know? Yeah, so there was this, like, hey, this is going to be a good Nicolas Cage movie. So I was I was very interested because, you know, as much as you guys really, really like that uh, conspiracy theory thriller from 2008, <laughs> whatever it is. Seeking justice. Seeking justice. As much as you guys love it, and hey. Shout out Guy Pierce. I respect your judgment. Kind of made me a little sad. I wanted to not feel sad about Nick Cage, and, and I did not. I mean, it was sad what happened to his wife, but we'll get into that. What we noticed in this movie is that it's really unquestionably... I mean, Mike and I have loved a handful of movies. I've like, really genuinely loved a handful of the movies that he's done lately. You know, I love mm -hmm. Inconceivable for all the trash that it is. Mm -hmm. You know, we both love... Army of no, One. Army of One. I think Dog Eat Dog. We got a new appreciation for that. Army of One was great. I loved the hell out of that movie. Mom and Dad is a lot of fun, but I feel like there hasn't been a movie that, like, the snobs who just hate on Nicolas Cage have come together to say is a quote-unquote good movie since Joe in 2013. Mm -hmm. And so it turns out, apparently, that the way to win over the public is just to have Cage as a lumberjack and your movie is going to be good. Yeah, they like flannel bearded Cage, I suppose. Yep. That's, it is a great look for him. Yeah, grizzled old Cage. You know, a lot of people, you know, I'd ask them, because I waited a while to see the movie, and it was hard kind of not finding out stuff working in a movie theater, but, like, I would ask people... You know, how is the movie? How's Nick Cage in this movie? And they would be like, oh, man, it's Nick Cage at his Nick Cageist, man. He has so many freakouts. It's great. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I was kind of dreading the stereotypical Nick Cage freakouts. Then you think about all the shit his character's going through, and it's like, any one of us would be doing Nick Cage freakouts if this shit happened to us, you know? <laughs> they just got Nick Cage. Yeah, and I mean, that's only half the movie. The first half, it's quiet Cage, you know? Yeah. It's reserved Cage, and that is equally, to me, as great and entertaining. This is a movie that Cage has come out and said in a couple interviews, at least, that he's afraid... Like, he doesn't like the meme culture that surrounds him. He's afraid that people are going to watch this movie for the wrong reasons, and they're going to want to watch it because it's the movie where he freaks out, and he has a chainsaw, and he's all bloody and stuff. I get... Because like, that's the way that the movie was promoted and marketed. We obviously haven't talked to Nicolas Cage on this podcast, but I really do think that, like, the way that he views the Cage memes and the Cage rage and all this different stuff, that people, like, the general public 
that you know we all sort of not look down upon but like we like to think at least in terms of cage that we rise above our sort of mentality our mindset is that we don't want to just make fun of cage or see him as crazy we want to see him as a good actor because we know that he is there's scenes in this movie where he's grieving his wife's death where he emotes in a way that like he hasn't in a long, long time. Like he's not just crazy in this movie. Like he is emotional in very strong other ways. It's something that we haven't really seen in a while. Like we've seen Crazy Cage, you know, him saying hokey pokey and destroying the pool table in Mom and Dad. <laughs> but him crying in this movie and just sobbing yeah. and just like devastated about the loss of his wife, a loss of Mandy. You know, it's like the cage that we sort of fell in love with. You know, when mm-hmm. we did Cage, uh, Cage Club, the original run. Yeah. 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 You know, this isn't, you know, him doing a Bogart impression for the third act in the back of seat of a car on the way to a diner and dog eat dog. You know, I feel like that is playing more to meme culture. Like, so I understand his trepidation to a degree as a viewer and lover of his work on maybe like a, I don't want to say like a higher, but maybe just like a more serious level. The thing is, like, it's unescapable with this film because it's so plays to his strengths so well. It's like, so, it's an avant garde horror film. And, like he's an avant-garde actor like he is such an expressionistic experimental person and like this is just the type of movie that is going to draw those performances from a person like him and so i could totally see the comparison to joe not just in look of his character but that movie he was very sort of introspective and you know playing a tough guy with sort of a revealing a softer side and it was you know i believe he cried a few times in that movie sort of more of a father figure and then yeah in this movie he gets to really cut loose and explode and go off the charts too so you get the best of both worlds so for someone who hasn't really seen cage in the way we have in a long time like we get you know we pick up on bits and pieces here and there this is sort of just like you know a huge meal for those types of people so it's definitely gonna draw a lot of attention you know the last third which is you know the chainsaw fights and the bathroom freak out and all that stuff you know of course it's over the top but this guy just watched his wife burn alive in front of him so this is nick cage this is nick cage like selling that feeling and he totally does Mm -hmm. and as you guys brought up before and which i'm sure we're going to get into the first two-thirds of the movie he's contemplative cage he's in love he's right you know you feel those feelings there are a lot of horror movies often i'm thinking of it's like a college girl agrees to babysit at a big house it was oh house of the devil house of the devil that's a movie where it spends like 90% 90% of the film just building up to I love it. the, I love the it. last little bit of insanity. The rule with, with horror movies is that you make the audience care about these people before everything goes to hell. Mandy does this really, really well. And you've got Nicolas Cage, and, and let's face it, like the movie doesn't really belong to Nicolas Cage as much as it belongs to and I'm forgetting their names, but uh, the the cult leader actor, the woman who plays Mandy, a lot of the big stuff comes from them. But you see his love for her, and you discover the motivations behind this cult and all this stuff, and it's all shot so incredibly. And a lot of it is Nicolas Cage listening to his wife or having little quiet moments with his wife. Any other actor could have just phoned that in. You know, she's telling some story about her father beat baby birds to death with a crowbar and he could be laying there like staring off in the distance but he is totally selling it like i was looking at his face the whole time and i was like he believes like that's the thing about nicholas cage he believes in everything he does 
and he w- was totally believed in this, so it's great to see. And I think what's kind of remarkable about this movie is that the first hour or hour 15 or whatever, like you're saying, Larson, has you build up this fondness and likeness. Like, you, you, you like Cage, you like Mandy until she is killed half of this movie, we'll get to that. I think there's also, in a way, like a bait and switch, in a way that I think would probably make a lot of people upset. Like I never, I still haven't seen the trailer for this movie because I don't watch trailers. And I should have. I meant to. I didn't. I just did before we started recording, just in case, <laughs> for the first time. So, because I feel like the marketing materials in terms of the the photos and the stills and everything was all Cage doing crazy stuff, and the people were like this is Cage with a chainsaw. It's crazy Cage, all this different stuff. It feels mm-hmm. like that's how they market the movie. Is that how the trailer is too? Yeah. yeah so mm-hmm. the trailer is definitely Cage going like, "I'm hunting evil." Okay. They killed her. I'm going to slay them all. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. it's a revenge horror demon hunter type setup is what it gets. Like I get more story from the trailer than the movie, you know, in a lot of ways. But I can sort of draw more after seeing the film because what I think is interesting is that the movie, it almost feels like it, it's like, we know that that's what you came here for, but before we get there, we're going to have 75 minutes of this. You know, it's Mandy, it's, you know, this really, really metal movie in terms of, like, what she's into, the aesthetic, the sounds, the look, their conversations, the biker gang, all this stuff, and, like, Cage, like Larson was saying, when he's on screen, he's thoughtful, he's listening, he's contemplative, he's meditative, he's all this different stuff, but there's also, like, big chunks of the movie where he's not on screen and like it is mandy's movie and you go to a movie called mandy and you think that it's going to be about cage but really it's about her like if this is her until she's killed and then yeah. you know she's the driving force behind the revenge the yeah. vengeance it's still about her yeah yeah it, yeah Right, exactly. She's like the the lingering thread there, but he's right. And she makes that reappearance at the end there for a minute yeah. as a hallucination, which is terrific. But no, like, that's what I totally love. Like, usually when there's a bait and switch, like, it sucks. Like, you know, <laughs> like when it happens, like it's done for like exploitation films and things just to get you in the seats and stuff. Like, I almost feel like the Meg did that to me this summer, you know, where it's like, right. come have this fun shark monster milk movie and we get there and it's just like trying to be a serious rote action thing. In this case i was beyond happy just because there's nothing really quite like this nowadays i mean people try and do things like this but i don't know there's like a a lack of pretension to this version of this type of thing like i think of stuff like david lynch and and guys like that and how many copycats there are and i feel like here's a guy not a copycat but you could see the influence right and you see that he doesn't let it overcome you know what he really was trying to say as himself like because there's tons of influence here from like hellraiser to phantasm the mad max and texas chainsaw like it's all there right but it's all redone in his original sort of point of view and all that stuff and so i feel like he's doing that with the build-up as well where he's saying like what good is the kill without you know the sort of the tease beforehand he's found this like incredible visual language to tease it so interestingly and i've never really quite seen a movie like this before in the way that it's edited and the colors and the really slow and deliberate 
shots and all that kind of thing. Like, it's just really refreshing to watch a movie like this. I was pleasantly surprised at how little of this film was Nicolas Cage fighting demons with a chainsaw. And I never thought I'd say that, but I was pleasantly surprised with how much of it is it's an art film, you know, it's avant garde. It's, and you haven't really. You'd think you would have gotten a chance to see Cage do more of this kind of stuff, but he hasn't really done... I mean, he worked with Lynch before. Yeah, and like he did a Herzog movie. I yeah, mean, That's kind of close. <laughs> I feel like Wild at Heart is probably one of Lynch's more sort of mainstream films. More like, approachable, for sure, yeah. Yeah, like you said before, he's an avant-garde guy in every sense of the word. He doesn't really get a chance to do this out there artsy stuff a lot of the stuff where it's like oh there's a there's a tiger at the drug dealer's house uh she's gonna tell a story about her dad killing birds now she comes it's this stuff that doesn't really like need to be there it's kind of there for you know art for lack of a better word but the camera effects and the color effects it could have seemed cheesy and pretentious and and trying to ape off of filmmakers like lynch but it didn't it was really kind of beautiful. And I think that's like a growth of the filmmaker, because I saw, I've only seen it once, and I saw it like four or five or six years ago, but his first movie, Beyond the Black Rainbow, I felt was the kind of movie a lot of people were trying to make that they were like, oh, this is my Holy Mountain, this is my El Topo, this is my David Lynch, this is my whatever. And I felt like, oh, like this doesn't feel new or original. Again, I don't remember almost anything, if anything, from Beyond the Black Rainbow, other than like I wasn't super impressed by it. Maybe I would love it today. I don't know. But I feel like Mandy is like a growth there that he's Mm -hmm. able to take these influences, but also do his thing with it and make it feel paying homage to stuff, but also feel original at the same time. Yeah. I I only saw Black Rainbow once last year around this time, Halloween. It's it's interesting. Like, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but like Mandy is like more approachable than that. Like Mandy could be shot more straightforward without all the crazy colors and, you know, trails and trippy psychedelic effects and all that. Like you could tell this story, you know, like Eli Roth could shoot this movie. You know what I'm saying? Like (laughs) in that way. And like, Sure. It came down to uh, like the director's point of view to be like, why do it that way when it could just I could put my spin on it. Like that's the thing I feel about this. Like you totally feel his stamp on it. Like you feel all that black rainbow uh, style and aesthetic and everything. But this movie has like more of a concrete thread. Like there's more you know, of like a story going on here. There's there's kind of more to follow. It is easier to follow. That's really interesting, I feel like. He's really, like, it's a, it's a big leap. Like, it, you know, he didn't just grow a little. I feel like he grew a lot to be able to say, look, I need to at least find something that people can follow and then I can take it to the edge visually and all that kind of thing and, and mess with them that way. So I don't know exactly how to say this, but this is also a, a point that I made on Gringo. Like when we talked about Gringo for Watch the Throne, the Charlie Theron podcast, which you should go check out because it's a wonderful podcast. When we talked about Gringo, I was like, I can't believe this movie is almost two hours long. Like it feels like it's the kind of comedy that should be like 90 minutes. Like it feels like to me, okay, a cult kidnaps and kills a guy's wife and he gets revenge it feels like the kind of movie that would be like 80 or 85 or 90 minutes just like you know pulpy non-stop action she's killed like 25 minutes in and then he's hunting them down you know what i mean it feels like it should be like in the genre like a horror movie generally you know and this is not an indication of quality because everything varies but generally horror movies are shorter because there's less story usually it's a lot of kills it's a lot of effects it's a lot of things that people can see all you need to know i think or a major indication that this is 
is not that kind of movie. It's the fact that this is like two hours and one minute long. And the revenge is only the last like 40 minutes or so. Like, there's so much of this that it's beautiful, like, build-up and set-up and atmosphere and character-building and world-building. You know, you're gonna get that stuff, but it's it's that, you know, careful precision of everything leading up to it that it's not... It's, like, within the horror genre, but it's not, you know, what you would maybe expect when you hear what the movie's about. Yeah, one thing I was thinking of, you know, I'm thinking about the aesthetics of it now, all the all the amazing, really unique experimental things he does with with filming this movie when at the beginning of the movie when it comes up that it's 1982 and it's like in this oh the title cards yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. The, title well, cards. Title the title cards. the title cards are great in general but i was a little concerned that it was going to be sort of it's very fashionable these days stranger things it's sort of like every five minutes or something like hey it's the 80s Remember, mm-hmm. remember answering machines, you know, I was like, oh, no, this is going to be something like that. It's going to be what I call nostalgia porn, with the exception of the odd uh, period appropriate car. Really, the, the early 80s stuff comes through in the aesthetics because everything about this movie looks like an early 80s album cover or the cover yes. the cover of a fantasy novel from the <laughs> yeah. from the early 80s it wasn't yeah. like oh they're playing pac-man in a pizzeria it's it went <laughs> while listening much, to a walkman yeah it went right. much deeper than that and that was a really cool thing yeah what what i like about that is that it feels like cuz we don't really know i mean we know that they're in the Shadow Mountains or the Smoky Mountains? They're the Shadow Mountains. The, the, the Shadow Mountains. In yeah, 1983 AD. Mm-hmm. And it just feels sort of like rural Pennsylvania, maybe, or somewhere. Like, it doesn't feel crazy to think that there are still places in the country that look like this, that the people drive cars like this, that, like, you know, that, that time has not caught up to. You know what I mean? Like, it feels yeah, like... seclusion, yeah. Like, it's, you know, it's the Shadow Mountains, 1983 AD, which apparently is also the same year that Beyond the Black Rainbow takes place in, which I guess this guy just oh, loves okay. that year. You're right, Larson. Like, there's careful choice and reason and decisions to be retro in a way that works and that doesn't feel forced. Mm-hmm. The only real sort of thing that dates it aside from that title card is reagan's voice you know you get a little bit of reagan on the radio and like that's pretty much it unless like you you know you know like how culty the 80s really were i guess between jamestown and hale bop those guys like this this guy seems to be more of the latter kind of strikes me more of like a 90s space cult guy but still no like this feels more like part dream part nightmare that like takes place in the 80s you know like it has you're right like all the album cover artwork definitely feels like this is just like a dio cover come to life at one point you know when when cage is fighting but but that's like the thing like it's so different and experimental like sequences kind of like do their own thing and then another sequence will kind of do its own thing and they sort of stay within the tone of those sequences and stuff and it just works all as like a complete whole because like when he like when he goes on his you know revenge kick it's still gorgeous it only slightly cuts to like fast cutting sort of action cutting editing only very once in a while and it's done for 
clear reason because you know he's more active and he's you know thinking faster or whatever he's just more kinetic and yeah it's following certain rules like he's following rules as a filmmaker like it's almost reminding me of nolan to a degree where he's like he's not just nolan wouldn't just use you know slow motion to use slow motion it'd have to be some sort of like internal logic to the movie for that to be happening for some reason and like i feel like the same thing is with this you know like the reason that one scene seems so trippy is because everyone's fucking tripping like their balls (laughs) off and stuff you know so like it all just really feels within the realm of itself which is i just feel like really impressive it's just really i don't know it just seems very complex you brought up long cuts uh, not long cuts long takes long shots i'm so used to especially in a movie like this seeing those quick Eli Roth cuts, you know, Mm -hmm. when I'm watching a movie like this, especially obviously in the first two thirds before all hell breaks loose conversations, the camera is held on someone's face for the whole conversation. And you see their face change. Like for example, it, it, it really struck me when the cult leader is introduced and he's speaking to like his right hand man. Most of the conversation is shot on the face of the right-hand man, even when the cult leader's speaking, and it forces you to sort of watch his face, and you learn so much about the character. Just he's staring at this guy with such adoration that you're like, okay, like it really strikes home the seriousness and the the complexity of their relationship. And it's like no other horror movie would, certainly not another horror movie would do something like that spend so much time on these small moments with these characters. But that is obvious. I think it's it's probably like a, a directorial trademark. It's probably something he didn't be on the Black Rainbow. I do want to say, so, okay, so two things. It's not quite a title card, but the movie starts with When I Die, Bury Me Deep, Lay Two Speakers at My Feet, Wrap Some Headphones Around My Head, and Rock and Roll Me When I'm Dead. And you're like, oh shit, like, I don't know what I just got into, but this is the best. Like, that just sets the tone for the entire movie. I think we put up devil horns when we watched oh, this live. It was so good. That quote, everyone just, like, had this sigh come out of them, like, oh. <laughs> I know. And so the, the one thing that I wish this movie was a little, like, this movie is very metal. I'm not saying that it's not. You know, my favorite film critic David Ehrlich, who I, you know, quote a bunch on here, he had a tweet like, you know, I wish that Mandy could be a little bit more metal, like people were saying. He's like, LOL, JK, like it's the most metal thing I've ever seen. It is in just about every way. The only thing that I wish was a little bit more metal was because this opening title card reminded me of a movie called The Devil's Candy, which with Ethan Embry, I think it's set in Austin, or at least set in Texas. And it's about a guy who he's sort of channeling spirits through his art. There's like a, a, a mentally unstable person who used to live in the house that he and his family just bought. And it is overtly a very metal movie. Like he plays, you know, really loud guitar, the score, the soundtrack, all of it is super, really, truly metal. The one thing about this movie that I feel like wasn't as metal, or maybe it's just metal in a different way, and maybe just this title card, you know, psyched me up in a different way. 
But I feel like the music, I think we sort of agreed on this maybe on the revisited episode, Mike, is that the mm-hmm. music doesn't feel as metal as it maybe could be. I'm not saying that it's wrong, because I think, I think the, the music really works for the movie, but to have everything else so fit into that aesthetic so perfectly, you know, mm-hmm. with the art and with the style and with the tone and with everything, and then for the music to not be just like, you know, power chords, feels not like a missed opportunity, but like it could have gone even that next step further. But maybe that would have been too much. Maybe they tried with that and mm. it didn't work. I don't know. Well, yeah. I, I was thinking about this a lot because, you know, I've been hearing the word metal through thrown around a lot about this movie. It's the one thing people would say to sell other people on the film. It makes for a good headline if you're writing an article for a blog or something. I didn't get that from the movie. I mean, of course, the end with the chainsaw fights and whatnot, that's pretty metal. And the axe. Let's not forget the axe. Yeah, the axe. Both the music and the visuals kind of led me to feel like it was more of like a progressive rock movie. Yeah, that's not a bad call. What I was thinking, Joey, because I saw the, that movie, that Ethan Emery movie, that's like, you know, Norwegian black metal, death yes, metal, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, this is more psychedelic kind of metal, sort of like Alice Cooper level, maybe, I'm thinking. This is almost 50-50 hippies metal. Like, this is the hippies versus the metalheads. And, like, that's something I really drew upon on the third viewing, where I wonder if he was trying to say something where it's like the average person, or like just, you know, the person on the street might look at like a biker or someone in a like a metalhead and be like, oh, that person's dangerous and look at a hippie and be like, oh, I can trust that person, you know, just on the way that he looks. And this movie says like, it's quite contrary to that, actually, like, trust the metalheads, like, they uh, are much more sort of, you know, calm and reserved, and it's the hippies you gotta look out for, that they're the, you know, the trippy hippie Jesus freaks out there that you're not sure about. I thought that was an interesting, that's where I come down on, like, the metal, I guess, like, uh, conversation is like, yeah, yeah, it's it's sort of more of like a 50-50 thing here. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, also, the other thing is that, like, LSD and hallucinogens, which play a very, very big part in this movie, they're not really metal. Metalheads drink beer and do cocaine. They don't really, <laughs> they don't really do LSD. So it, it, I feel like that sort of vibe was much different. Metal metalheads are like jittery and uptight. I saw a lot of metal in it, but to me it felt more like something psychedelic and trippy. The hippies, I think, if they're the ones who created the biker gang, right? Like they had made this LSD for them, and then they had just drank too much and they sort of became broken and i wonder if there's also sort of going with like what mike's saying if that's like a real metal is like this where it's you know cage and andrea riseborough but you think metal is like this where it's just like the biker gangs of like you know knife dicks and like spikes out of their head and stuff like i don't know like there's it seems like there's two different kinds of metal like there's the ones that you like the the stereotypical like 1980s minister is like oh this is the devil's music and then there's people like Andrea Riseborough who just likes we- reading fantasy and listening to Motley Crue and, oh, you yeah. know, watching Night Beast on TV and, like, that sort of whole, your friendly neighborhood metalhead. I don't know. That's kind of interesting, like, now that I think about it, because if, like, the Jesus freaks are, like, I'm just call them, keep calling them that, the, the cult, right, who are, like, based on, like, they base their stuff, like, he's wearing a cross, so they're, like, Christians and Christianity and all that stuff. So, like, yeah, the stuff with, like, the bikers and his journey sort of, like, into hell to find them it's like much more traditionally would you would find in the bible 
regarding metal, like demons and devils and things like that. But then I feel like Cage and, and Mandy, like Red and Mandy, it's like, no, that's that's what like real metal is. Like he's a lumberjack slash blacksmith, right? And she works at like the local store and like loves to read fantasy novels. Like that's all metal is. Like she's an artist and she draws really great sort of like spiritual stuff. He cuts down trees for a living. Like that's metal enough, man. Like that's all they need, you know? And so I find that kind of interesting. I don't I don't know if that's something he's going for, but I, I like reading into it that way. Yeah, me too. The cult is called the Children of the New Dawn. That's the second title card that we get. But I think, you know, this is something that we were talking about as we were watching it, you, me, and Brian of the High School Slumber Party podcast, and we were watching it the first time. We were like, I wonder if we're going to get a title card for the movie. And I was thinking we might not get one until, like, the very end of the movie. Like, there's some, like, you know, big dramatic thing that happens, and we smash cut to a card that says Mandy, and the movie's over. But no, what happens is that we get Cage crafting his axe, which we have to talk about in great detail, and only then, one hour, 15 minutes, and 10 seconds into the movie we get the title card that says Mandy. Mandy's been dead in the movie for 20 minutes, maybe half an hour. There's only 40 minutes left without the credits. There's not a lot of movie left, and Mandy's only in a flashback of that, but here is where we're like, that was all build up. Now this is the movie you've been waiting for. (laughs) Right, like we just watched sort of like a prequel movie, and now we get the short film entitled Mandy, where it's the, yeah, the murder revenge stuff. And I mean, we've talked about this back even like Raising Arizona, where like that comes in, Mm -hmm. I think 10 or 15 or 20 minutes into a 90 minute movie. This is, you know, crazy. I just love when movies like, because it is a choice when you can bring that in. You know what I mean? Like It's a statement. It's a statement, Mm -hmm. yeah. One of my favorite movies of the last five or ten years is this movie called Sparrow's Dance, which I don't know if you saw. I think I might have told you about it. It was my favorite movie Hannibal years ago, and then I was like, oh, wait, no, just kidding. It's Spring Breakers that year. But this is still up there. Anyway, it comes like a half an hour into an 85-minute movie, and it comes at the perfect time. Like, it's so good. I'm like, oh, like, I was already really liking this movie, but now I love this movie. In a similar way, I just listened to this past week I don't know if you know, I don't know if I told you about Mike, I think I might have, but the Empire Film Podcast, not on our podcast network, so don't go check them out too much, they did like a <laughs> seven-hour interview, a spoiler-filled interview with Christopher McQuarrie, director oh, yes, of Mission yes. Impossible Fallout, Rogue Nation Fallout. Apparently they did like three hours on Rogue Nation, he did two three-hour sessions for Fallout, and they talk a lot in that interview about the title sequence in Fallout comes like 20 minutes in. And I think it's by far like the longest amount of time into a Mission Impossible movie before that happens. And like, he just talks about his like reasoning and his logic for doing that. And I just love when directors either decide to or or have the ability to or don't bow to expectations or maybe what other people at the studio wants. And they just say, this is the right time for the title card to come in because like when it comes in in Mandy it's just like oh yes like even if you're not aware that you haven't seen it I don't know if we would have noticed that it hadn't happened if the other two title cards weren't as good as they were and as you know right. sort of spectacular as they were but we were like I wonder if we're gonna get it. like we were saying out loud we're like I wonder mm-hmm. if we're gonna get it and when it hits even if you don't know that it's 
you know, that you haven't seen it, you're like, oh my god, like, yes, like, here we go. Yeah, yeah, like, those first two really kind of catch you off guard, or at least that first one, and then after the first one, you're expecting a couple more, but then that last one doesn't come for a while, so when it does, it, it really is sort of, like, this reminder, like, oh yeah, title card, and, like, great timing, and it's, like, tough, because we're in, like, I can totally feel it, especially in the mainstream, when you go to, like, big Hollywood blockbusters, like, Marvel movies and things, like, the old-fashioned opening credits are just gone, you know, it's only, like, in a Bond film, for the most part, are you going to get a nice, elaborate opening credit scene? And nowadays, they save all that shit till the very end of the movie. I don't really feel like that's great. Like, I'd rather have it all up top, for the most part. Um, I think the one time it actually had an impact, though, was when Daniel Craig took over as Bond for Casino Royale, because it's like they saved, I believe they saved him saying Bond until, like, the very end, or he doesn't even say it or something, but, like, that movie ends on, like, a really great note. It doesn't end on the title sequence or anything, but it ends on a similar sort of in a way like an impact that one would give I think I don't know but like I was always a big fan of you know the art of the opening credit sequences and this is just a great reinvention of all of that kind of thing like this has a nice opening credit sequence with like really cool font and stuff but title card like these types of titles scattered throughout the movie almost like chapters like in a way Tarantino would do really cool yep I agree I think another thing that this movie does in a weird fun way is does it do, do either of you remember the first line of the movie? Is it knock knock? Knock knock, and then Andrew Riseboro Mandy does not respond in the right way. Cage again says knock knock. She says who's there? He says Eric Estrada. Eric Estrada who? Eric Estrada from Chips. That's it. That's the joke, and that's how the movie starts. And it's weird and wonderful. It says everything you need to know about their relationship. He can be this corny dude, but she still loves it, and I don't know why it's in the movie other than that, but I just, you know, I remember we were dying because we were just like, this is not the way that we expected, or maybe just because mm-hmm. of that. Like, it's not the way that you expect the Chainsaw Revenge movie to start with a knock-knock <laughs> joke without really a punchline. The punchline is just like, that guy from that show. Like, okay. Yeah, again, it's the slow burn. It's the stuff that makes you appreciate the whole revenge thing even more because you see the purpose of these conversations, the purpose of these moments is to show what their relationship is like. When you're in a good relationship, you can sit around and say silly things and bullshit with somebody or or tell them a horrible story about your father killing birds with a crowbar. Oh, birdie. What would Matthew Modine say about this? But um, (laughs) it's all these little things that show you why he gives a shit later on you know like he, this was mm-hmm. this was the love of his life and and through a relatively small amount of scenes together you're able to really get that and i think it's done really well i mean i'm getting it from basically the first two scenes because like when this movie opens with cage you know chopping down a tree and then he like gets into a helicopter and then is driving in his truck to his cabin like he looks troubled like it looks like he is lost or broken like he, there's a missing piece of him and then when he goes home and he's so happy to see Mandy like it just clicks for me right away you know I just feel like it's really well directed like it's really strong in that way like we were saying earlier like with the visual language you know because they really hold on his face in that helicopter they really 
really hold on them together at the house, like when they're together. Like you really just see the emotion, you know? I mean, there's no other way. Like it's as if you're reading it like right out of their mind. Like it's really just strong acting, strong directing, and just not usual in this day and age for it to all come together so well. Mike, what you were saying that he looks troubled like when he's not with Mandy and there is a very good chance that there is a whole backstory to this guy that we don't know about. Chopping down trees and living with Mandy is his respite after a really dark past because he had a mold for this crazy axe. (laughs) He knew the guy to go to to get crossbow that he apparently used for similar purposes before. And stashed there, yeah. Yeah, and, and God knows what he and this guy have gotten. What's his name, the guy from Predator Bill and Duke. Commando? Bill Duke. You know, who knows what the two of them have gotten up to. And I mean, like, all you need to know about him in, like, the perfect little bit of characterization is that when you go to his trailer, the door just says, fuck off. He's like, can't you read? Like, this is a guy who does not want to be bothered. He and Cage have this history that we don't know about that the the director hints at or alludes to but does not fill in. Even this guy who does not want to be bothered by anyone in the world is okay talking to Cage because Cage and he have a history. There's also, like, a history with Mandy. Like, she's got this scar on her face. She's got two very different eyes. You know, she's been damaged by something in the past. We don't know what it is. The most surprising thing to me was looking up the actress, because I, I think I'd seen her in different things, but, like, mm-hmm. she is beautiful in real life. And in here, I'm not saying she's not attractive, but she is definitely made up to look damaged. She's got this history. Gage has a history. They have a history together or separately or whatever. It doesn't really matter what it is. Like, I would like to know more just because I'm curious and I love Cage and Cage characters. But, like, we get enough that they are the ones for each other. That their life of just watching terrible horror movies and eating cheddar goblin mac and cheese at a, at a place in the middle of the woods. Like, that's the, that's the life they want. And, like, that is enough for me to feel for him when he sees her burned alive in front of him while he's chained up and has her tied up and has nothing, no way to help her or stop them. Yeah, and, and something about the actress, you know, when I was watching it, I couldn't quite figure out, like, is she beautiful? Is she grotesque? Like, it's so strange the way they make her up. At certain moments, you look at her and you're like, this woman is beautiful. And certain moments, you look at her and you're like, Jesus, what's been done to this woman? It sort of reminded me of, like, a model, like a high fashion model. If you, not like a Cindy Crawford, but, you know, someone who... Like a waif model. Yeah, their faces, if you look at the face of a high fashion model... The reason they are a model is because they have this kind of otherworldly look about them. It makes you almost think, like, what? Are, is that beautiful? You know, and, and she captured that, that sort of otherworldly look about her. And I know that she's looked mm-hmm. a lot more conventional in other films. She was in Birdman. I think it's great character like it's a great character trait like it just we're doing now like we can just infer so much from so little about these characters from what we're given you know like mandy wears that 44 t-shirt and later cage is wearing it to get his revenge for her and stuff you know like there's just little important details that repeat and things and it's so great and i i love how like mandy is just 
irresistible to a degree to people and like so alluring like obviously cage is in love with her and we sort of see that scene where they're just you know there are these moments where they're staring into each other's eyes and you could just tell like they're the ones for each other but then also you know the cold leader sees her and it's love at first sight for him he can't live without her either like there's and i sort of feel the way watching her in this movie too it's just like there's just something unique about her like i don't know if it's beautiful i don't know if it's ugly i don't know I don't really care because like it's alluring and I just I I'm kind of obsessed with it during the movie like I can't not look at her like especially that moment when she comes out of the lake at night it's just there's something scary and beautiful about it all at the same time you know what else there's something scary and alluring about is Cheddar Goblin (laughs) I was hoping we'd get to that event oh we're getting the Cheddar Goblin so Cheddar Goblin is a commercial that let me find out this was directed by Chris Casper Kelly who directed the Adult Swim short Too Many Cooks yes it is remarkable. It's, you know, the kids and goblins agree Cheddar Goblin is the cheesiest. And we see Bill Duke <laughs> in his trailer has Cheddar Goblin mac and cheese. It is a bizarre commercial that feels like, I think I, even when we were watching, I was like, Mike, was this a real commercial? And like, you're like, no, of course not. But like, it feels like it could be real. That it feels like it's it's got that 80s aesthetic. It's just weird and gross, but also wonderful. And I just love yeah. the Cheddar Goblin. Two things about the Cheddar Goblin commercial. Uh, one is that they, they just nailed everything about the look of a commercial from the early 80s, you know, like our cheese versus the leading brand of cheese. And it's just a bigger block of cheese. And, you know, the kids at the table and all that, it was just spot on. So, so 1983 or whenever it was supposed to be. And the other was that it is sort of a reflection of the world that Mandy takes place in where it could be our universe, but there's also mutant demon bikers. But there's also, and there's also like weird stuff going on in the sky. Like it's like, it's like the yeah. Aurora Borealis, but amplified. Right. It seems like the Milky Way times two up there. <laughs> yeah, some but kind it, of something. it's grounded enough so that we, we feel the stakes, you know, because if it was completely ridiculous, the death of Mandy wouldn't be so effective because who knows, she'd come back as a zombie in the next scene or whatever. But it's, yeah. it's grounded enough. The Cheddar Goblin commercial, it's a spot-on 1983 commercial, but with a goblin vomiting mac and cheese all over children, you know? So I think it's a a pretty accurate reflection of the sort of the rules of the movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, that's what I love is that it it totally feels in-universe. Like, it happens immediately after Cage is, like, holding the charred remains of Mandy. He goes inside, and that's on TV, unfortunately. You know, it's like... At your most horrible moment, your the cheddar the happy cheddar goblin commercial <laughs> comes on, you know, like life's bitter irony kind of thing. But what I love is that it's saying like this world isn't all biker demons and you know crazy cults and and stuff like that. Like there's actually children in this world and like probably children's programming and movies and you know like there's all kinds of entertainment and it just opens my mind to think of like what kind of tv programs like the movie they do watch in this movie you know it's like one of those total like b-movie classics and everything like is that just what's always on tv like those types of of awesome terrible movies all day long and stuff so like i I just love how much it like expands the universe just within like that little minute absolutely what also expands the universe in a similar way that also feels very in-universe is when the children of the New Dawn kidnap Mandy and dose her and use the scorpion or whatever. You know, somebody says, I like to call that the cherry on top. They bring her to the next room to see the cult leader 
and he asks if she likes the Carpenters. He thinks that they're sensational, but that this is even better. He plays for her his own music, which apparently you can hear online now, but we were talking about before about his vinyl art that's on there. But even this, that feels in-universe, like, again, something that was created for the film, but feels very at home in this world. And not it's not as weird as a Cheddar Goblin. It's much more normal, like, if you could hear that and just think it was, like, a real song or whatever. But I just like that there is this art, this media created within the world that is either important to the story or just sort of tangential to the story. It's layered, and it's not just what we're seeing, but there is a world around it in which... You know, people are creating things not just for this movie. This scene here where where she's loaded up with LSD and brought before the cult leader is really, really the scene that, that sticks out for me out of the whole film. The camera effects are so over the top to the point where it's almost ridiculous, but it really gives you the disorienting, like the way they warp the voices and all of that stuff, it makes you feel as disoriented as, you know, Mandy. Yeah, it makes you feel like you're tripping, yeah. almost. <laughs> and, and that whole thing where he makes her listen to his album, and it sucks. And it's, <laughs> yeah. and I just, I was waiting for Mandy to just be like, this fucking sucks, man. But, like, she didn't have to, she just laughed. Obviously it sucks, because the lyrics are all about how awesome he is. It's just not very good, but... It's not her kind of music. It's like the Carpenters, and she listens to Motley Crue and Black Sabbath. So I, I loved, you know, her just laughing in his face. And of course, it was very effective when he starts trying to masturbate in front of her and exposes himself. To say that she laughs at him is really underselling what she does. Like, she can't stop laughing at him. Because yeah. she's laughing at his music, she's laughing at him, she's laughing at the idea that he is this, like, powerful entity. Yeah. And then, you know, he gets yeah, people all... people fall for it, yeah. He gets all yeah. defensive and upset, and he's telling people not to look at him, and, like, you know, he's, like, sh- he's shamed, and he's trying to exert his masculinity in a very primal way. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't know if he's going to jerk off on her or just, like, in front of her. It seems like he can't even get it up. Like, he's just so embarrassed and emasculated yeah. by, like, seemingly the one person in this world that did not think he was the coolest man alive. Like, he <laughs> saw her pass by and was like, I must have her, but didn't know anything about who she was or what she was into. And, like, you could not find someone more antithetical, more against who you are as this, like, religious cult leader than this woman who is just, like, super into art, you know, metal, spirituality. Like, it's like the opposite end of spirituality, you know what I mean? Yeah, and that's and that's the thing. We know all this about her by this point through, yeah, yeah. through just a few interactions and scenes. We know this guy is full of shit and that she is 100% genuine and can see right through it. They were able to convince us of all of this without spelling it out. What's even crazier for me is that they make him seem so dangerous up until that point. Like, he gives the dude the horn of Abraxas and is like, summon the demon biker gang and all this shit and bring me Mandy. And they do, and you're like, damn, they sacrificed the fat kid. They're, they're <laughs> like kidnapping Mandy. They've got Cage knocked out somewhere, tied up in barbed wire. Like, this, is, this guy's nuts. And then it's all like his entire ego thing, All the whole trip comes down to this idea that like no one can appreciate him as a shitty artist and like yeah. he's just failed music 
musician and like he couldn't even keep the band together so he like formed this loser cult you know out of like how pathetic must they be if they fell for this shit kind of thing like it's just everything you get his entire package right there his motivation like his narcissism like his neuroses like everything is explained so so well so perfectly between like his story and then his reaction to mandy it's just it's awesome history has shown us at least two if not far more than two that i can't think of right now examples of like what people would call the literal embodiment of evil, which sort of stemmed from pasts as failed artists. Like, we have, obviously, Hitler was a failed painter and took that personally. According to the IMDb trivia, which I, I think Brian might have even mentioned when we did the Revisitor, maybe you did, that Charles Manson was a failed musician, and apparently he also yeah. took it very, very personally when people did not like his musician musicianship. This just fits in with that world and that aesthetic, and you know, not that this guy is Charles Manson, but it feels like modeled after him in a way also the way that he calls his you know subjects or whatever pigs same thing happened there oh, yeah. so yeah mm-hmm. absolutely yeah what happened with manson didn't the beatles say he sucked and the... no i'm just kidding <laughs> but, like, <laughs> he ended up actually releasing stuff from prison right but no 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 yeah like that's what that's another sort of one of those influential touches that that are great like that i love like this movie is just like this stew of 80s horror and like kind of like iconography and stuff like it all just tastes so good together like that like you know all the elements alone work so well on their own but he's picked and taken like just like the right amount from each of them uh to sort of like help craft his new thing i think a recurring theme in our discussion is that there are there are so many things that this guy tried and they could have blown up in his face you know the the 80s setting the over the top visual effects the uh commercial the references a lot of these references are very blatant you know she lives near crystal lake that was a little much for me but whether or not that was meant to be a reference but i think it was yeah it, that it was can't a little, not be you can spot the influences very easily but it doesn't take you out of it you're not looking at the bikers and you're like, oh, well, these are the Cenobites from Hellraiser. Even the animated sequences, which are very, very clearly an homage to the movie Heavy Metal, they didn't really feel, they could have felt so superfluous, gratuitous, but but they weren't. Mm-hmm. They, they felt in place in this crazy album cover of a movie. I think I remember when we were watching it together, Joey, like it cut to cartoon for a minute and we were just kind of like oh wow like yeah like this, this is movie can do this th- is what we're doing now right like this movie can do anything <laughs> like it really wants to <laughs> that's just really cool like yeah i loved when this cut the animation now as I, I was thinking to myself like maybe this guy will do a, a cartoon one day like imagine that like uh, i love that i mean there's not a lot of movies that just cut to cartoon in the middle i can think of you know kill bill one where they're just like oren's backstories in cartoon right because mm-hmm. it's just like that's how it is told for whatever reason. Oh, she's Japanese, so they use anime yeah. to like illustrate her backstory. But there are a bunch of different references in this movie. The 44 on the shirt that you mentioned before, Mike, is apparently a reference to Mark Twain's unfinished novel, The Mysterious Stranger, where a supernatural character huh. called Number 44 appears and uses his supernatural powers to expose the futility of mankind's existence. Yeah, it seems like kind of a stretch. Maybe. There was also, oh, that whole story about Mandy's father killing the the starlings and her walking through the woods and seeing the dead deer. 
that's all reference in in either vague or specific ways to Silence of the Lambs, like Clarice Starling. Oh yeah, Agent Starling. Mm-hmm. I can see it, that. There's a big sort of well, maybe it's not that big or overt. It is in this. I feel there's a um, Grimm's fairy tale sort of vibe going on with the woods in this. That they might just be, you know, like around a corner, you might run into the Vivich or something out there, <laughs> like in a mud hut or something. And uh, I thought that was really creepy. And there's also references, not necessarily visual, but in the script that toward the end of the film, when Cage tells the cult leader the psychotic drowns where the mystic swims is a variation of a quote by Joseph Campbell, who did like, you know, the hero's journey and stuff like that, the the famous mythologist. And he said, the psychotic drowns in the same waters in which the mystic swims with delight, which basically means that there's a really fine line between like psychosis and spirituality. Like this guy... You know, depending on who you ask, essentially, he's either like the second coming or just a nut job. You know what I mean? Like there's this very specific fine line there. But I think that even beyond just visual references, you know, the screenwriter for good or for bad is referencing very sort of heady topics at the same time. Yeah, and I'm definitely getting a lot of maybe some. Well, maybe not a lot, but there feels to be some, like, Dante imagery also going on with, like, this version of hell here and all that kind of, like, there seems to be levels to it, I guess, is what I'm saying. But I like that they're not trying to be so in-your-face with those kind of the literary references, because if I could just, you know, re-mention Gringo for a second, we found out after the fact they're like, we're trying to make a Hemingway-type film here, right? And, and we all just kind of looked yeah. at each other like, how is that? Wait, wait. Again? Like Gringo the movie about the guy who gets sent to South America to find a weed recipe yep. or something? Yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a through line throughout that that it's basically the sun also rises, uh that it's Okay. To the point where even the book is in the movie that he picks up. Like it's like, hey, you, you picking up what we're putting down? No, not really, Gringo. Ah, so there's an example of a movie that gets its references way wrong. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, talking about like things to take away from this movie, and any good movie you can take a number of things away from it, but part of it was about love, I think. Like, the relationship you see between him and Mandy, we talked about it a lot before. Like, that's what love is, and you you get that from a few very short scenes. And then you get this guy who's used to love being all about worshipping him. It's all about him, you know? That's what his version of love and happiness is, and she's just like, no, that's ridiculous, and laughs in his face, you know? Nicolas Cage, of course, is is fueled by that love to do a lot of horrible and violent things. It's a very simple thing, but it's about love being sort of a two-way street, not so much all about fulfilling, like, immediate needs and ego and things like that. All right, I think it's time for us to talk about fulfilling our own needs, and that is the need of seeing Cage get revenge for the death of Mandy. Him going to Bill Duke's trailer and saying that he's hunting. Bill Duke says, what you hunting? He says, Jesus freaks. And Bill Duke just says, I didn't know they were in season, man. And then Cage has his breakdown. Then he goes and crafts this axe. He doesn't just, like, make a fire axe. He gets, like, the most, to use the word we were using before, the most metal <laughs> axe that I've ever seen in the movie. It's like this eight-foot-tall, like, scepter, essentially, battle axe of kinds, like, forged from silver or steel with, like, all these ornamental cutouts and blades. What I think is cool about this movie is that Cage is taken not once but twice in this movie, that he and Mandy are taken in a very trippy scene, you know, in the middle of the night while it's, I think, it's thundering and lightning outside. They're taken by the, 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 the biker gang and the cult. 
and then Cage begins his revenge and gets taken again and gets separated from his axe again and sort of has to fight his way back to the axe. Like, it's just like, this guy <laughs> literally cannot catch a break. In the movie where, you know, his wife is killed, you know, he loses everything he cares about. He doesn't even have the advantage, like, I mean, not that he should, but like, even Bill Duke says, like, you know, you should go in knowing your odds aren't good and you'll probably die. And all Cage says yeah. is, don't be negative. Like, you know, <laughs> I, I know that I'm gonna, I know what I'm up against, let me do this. And he is successful, not that it makes him feel any better because Mandy's dead. Getting to that point is not easy. This axe, I find this a very telling sort of like prop in the movie. Like, I, it just opens up so much more to explore in your own, you know, time about who he was at one point in his life as a young man or something and what kind of a world this is and was and all that kind of thing. But I have to ask Larson, is this like a plus five axe that you might find uh, somewhere in D&D or something? Because those are vibes that start kicking in heavy for me once the point of view shifts to Cage's character. Like, I feel like now the movie is going to be more metal like we've been throwing that word around all night but like i feel like it becomes even though you know his face is going to melt off at one point for touching the magic lsd like i feel like for the most part like yeah he is now monster hunter cage and it's great it's terrific (laughs) yeah i mean there's no reason other than to do what he's about to do to make an axe like that there's no practical reason to have an axe like that unless it's to kill a bunch of demonic biker mutants so he he must have forged one for someone at least once in the past. You know what I'm saying? Like, even if it wasn't him who used it, there's one out there, then it's been used used on evil before. Like, maybe yeah. he's this universe's version of Yori from Lord of War, where he's like a peddler, not in guns, but in, like, battle axes. <laughs> in, like, mystical yeah. Yeah, pieces of equipment. We've established that this world does not operate in our reality and while magic seems a little you know the only reason a weapon would have a plus five or any such uh, addendum to it was either if it was imbued with some sort of magic and i don't think that magic specifically exists in this world the use of lsd throughout the film is it kind of lends itself to that is it real is it not but also if cage had special training with this axe he would get a plus five or something similar like we were saying before there's a very good chance that he has used a weapon like this or similar in the past i mean he does engage in some pretty intense hand-to-hand or saw-to-saw combat with these people. Not even the best lumberjack in the world can fight like that, probably. So I'm willing to bet that he's he's definitely had some kind of experience fighting against these guys or, or people much like them. I would agree with that. I think another way to realize that he has had run-ins with this, aside from just the way that he fights, is the way that he speaks to them when he calls the one a vicious snowflake, which I don't know (laughs) what that means in this world. I don't know if it's there because of the political climate, if you'll say, that that we're in right now. Like, you know, the word snowflake is tossed around a lot. I don't know what the exact meaning or purpose or whatever is I just know that it, it's delivered in a way that I'm like, oh, that is the best. There were several lines or random catchphrases that Cage said where I would have absolutely believed that he just threw it in there and they were like, yep, 
That's perfect. I like when he told the guy, "You ripped my shirt." Yeah, because <laughs> it's it's got you know it's got sentimental value. Yeah, yeah. We're aware of that. We saw Mandy wearing it before, so like you ripped the Mandy shirt, you gotta die. But I also think that like it enters this world where like we're becoming like not that this movie is ever not stylized, but when he's on this revenge kick, it becomes even more stylized to the point where you know he has. And I think we pointed it out when we were watching it. Mike was like that Shaw Brothers-esque, like, neck snap, where he, like, Mm -hmm. like, the camera even jerks in a way that it hasn't in the rest of the movie, and, like, he just, like, stares at the camera, like, almost like a, you know, a Bruce Lee sort of move, you know, like, this, like, really specific martial arts thing that is out of place in the movie and yet somehow perfectly at home in the movie. When he snapped that guy's neck, everyone in the theater applauded, and I was like... (laughs) I'm glad I got to see this in a theater. I saw a Q&A earlier. I didn't see the movie, but a Q&A with the co-writer of the film and the guy who played the cult leader. They were both like, you know what? You're getting to see this on a big screen. This is playing in like literally two cities for a week. Uh, It's the only time anyone's ever going to see it on the big screen. So enjoy it while you can. So I was glad I got to. Yeah, that's actually something I want to say before is that there's a couple. I have not watched them yet just because I didn't want to be like quoting the Q&As this entire time. But there's two 35 minute long Q&As on YouTube. There's one that he did at Sundance about this movie. And then there's also the one that they he did live, Cage did live in L.A. that was broadcast, I think, the Thursday before this movie came out to, like, the Brooklyn Draft House and the Yonkers Draft House and whatever. Like, whatever showed it the night before, you know, I guess Thursday the 14th or whatever, yeah, that there's, yeah. like, a 35-minute Q&A from the Egyptian in L.A. And so if you want, there's, like, an hour or more of Cage answering Q&A about this movie. Probably incredible to see that I want to see... And I will watch soon. I just didn't want to watch it here because, like, I don't, I, I want to have, my, I want to have some of my own thoughts left before we, uh, while we, while we talk about this movie. Yeah, I really quite enjoyed sort of how his journey just sort of became the landscape that he started to traverse. Like, we go from such a lush rich forest environment from where he's from like almost going from the nature the sanctuary of nature uh, and he has to travel north is his only direction but the further north we get the more it's like brimstone and fire and it's almost like we're on the edge of a volcano or something for the end of this movie but it's definitely like this cult is like hanging out in hell like that's what it feels like to me and i just like how the two halves of this movie like contrast and complement each other just like so well like that like it all just still feels in world it feels like the way the story should be going it doesn't feel like he's forcing this to have a chainsaw fight like it feels like the natural progression of where this would go like of course like chainsaw fight i would expect nothing less so it's just great that it's all even up until the end uh, holding together as he's hunting down one by one the members of the cult as he travels further north it becomes more and more like the cover of a cheap fantasy novel and it's great the tunnels he goes through and the temple that he discovers like shout out to the uh set scout the location scout for this movie, my God, like they found some amazing places that only look more amazing with the visual trickery of this film. It was really incredible. I agree with all of that. Another thing I want to point out is the tiger. There is a tiger that in a way sort of feels like Chekhov's gun. Like you see a tiger, the tiger's got to do something, but the tiger just leaves. Like it's, it, and it's <laughs> yeah. sort of, it, it makes perfect sense. Like, Cage has no qualms with this guy, the guy who's just making the acid 
I mean, this guy's part of the machine, he's part of the evil too, but this guy wasn't the one who killed his wife, it was the cult. And so he's going to go after them. They sort of have a, they come to understanding, the guy knows, he sees it in Cage's face, that they wronged him. They're like, oh man, they robbed you, why they got to be like that? Like, he knows, maybe he doesn't want to be there either. Like, it feels like he's doing this because he sort of has to for whatever reason. He also just has a tiger, and let the tiger go, (laughs) and then Cage moves on. I like that scene, because it feels like the final 40 minutes of this movie are kind of like a video game, where it's like, not necessarily boss fight the boss fight the boss fight, but like, you got to get the different stages, clear the different stages before you get to the final boss fight. And this feels like, okay, here we go. Cage somehow has to kill a tiger and kill a guy with a gun. Like, who? Like how are you going to do both or whatever? And then none of it happens. Like, he just sort of de-escalates the, situ- the situation because the guy with the gun, the acid maker, knows this guy's not here for me. We're essentially, we're ostensibly on the same side. Your your problem was that with them, I'm not going to bother you. Go do your thing, man. Yeah, it's just all he knows. <laughs> yeah, I think when Cage tried that one bit of acid and his face melted off he got like a vision and i think he saw the radio tower and that's where the acid man was making his sheets and blotters and all that kind of stuff so i wonder if he got like some kind of psychic message transmitted or transponded towards him or something but the thing i love most about the tiger it's cage that is cage is the tiger and he's, he's got the tiger on his shirt out. right yeah and at that moment when the guy lets the tiger out of the cage cage is uncaged and he is able to go after he's given the direction to go after the rest of the cult and finish his journey and everything so like you know in a movie that you know is probably dripping with more symbolism than i can figure out because it's mostly probably just inside stuff for the director i'd look at it and go like oh that just looks cool to me that's one thing that i was picking up in this movie going like i love that about it like it that's definitely supposed to represent his character so i thought that was really cool and then you get that really awesome shot of the tiger growling in front of the mystical you know background of the stars and the mountains and everything it's just really wild oh one other thing i do want to say while we're talking about the tiger shirt is that the scene probably in the tiger shirt and this is another one where I feel like it's Cage living up to what the crowd wants of him, but that still doesn't mean that we don't love it. Where he gets back, he sees the Cheddar Goblin on the TV, he goes into the most 80s bathroom of all time, which is glorious and beautiful. Orange-tiled bathroom has, like, a breakdown. Cleaning himself with vodka, and he's drinking the vodka, and just shouting and screaming. That is, in a way, sort of symbolic, against uh, again, of the cage. He's a caged animal in this little, in this little room, right? Yeah, I talked about it before, and it's like a lot of people, there were a lot of laughs in the audience during this scene, and it's hard not to because it's what you come to expect. It's meme cage, but he was playing a guy who just saw his wife burned alive, and he was into it. And I think, like, I, I do want to say, and I think, you know, I could speak for Mike here too, is that, like, we love meme cage, but, like, I think our whole thing is, like, there's more to it than that. Like, I feel like if you go to this movie and your only takeaways are, like, this scene and, like, the chainsaw fight, you know, him covered with blood, you're missing out on stuff. And I feel like we feel that way, and I feel like the people who listen to the show probably feel that way, hopefully feel that way. We love these scenes, too. It's just that there's, you know, the rest of the performance, the nuance, the emotion, the pain, the anguish he goes through. Like, that's more impressive to us, to me, than this, even though the scene is great. If it were any other actor, people wouldn't be like, oh, geez, look at George Clooney, all George Clooney it up out there. It's Nicolas Cage, and because he's 
giving a perf- an anguished, intense performance, it's like, oh, that's just Cage being Cage. Yeah, Joey, what was what's the one movie I can never remember where he's the mob boss's son? Kiss of Death? Kiss of Death, right? So, like, in that movie, you know, there's some meme-worthy Cage in that movie, and I feel like... Bench-pressing a stripper, if you will? Yeah, and, like, in that movie, there's a moment where he finds out that his dad just died, right? And he, he's, like, in a strip club, and he loses it, and he, like, goes nuts and all stuff, like, a couple times in that movie. And it's not always warranted, per se. You know what I'm saying? It kind of feels like either Cage or the director at that point going, like, go big, you know, this is a big movie, we're sort of doing a, a noir thriller, like, over-the-top thing here. So it doesn't quite fit, but, like Larson had been saying all night, you know, everything leading up to that moment is what makes it earned you know like it's not just there because now is the time for cage to go nuts in the movie you know like it's there because the story dictates it and i don't know that there's maybe two or three other actors out there that that probably could have pulled this off and maybe maybe even if that like that's was so impressive about this moment like I mean sure like I'm going through a range of emotions watching it like I'm laughing I'm scared you know I'm with them I'm against them like you know like it's very conflicting scene and I think that is just what great art can be you know and that might sound crazy to say because it's just one scene of a whole movie and everything but like I think that's what like it can come down to sometimes and so yeah it is a little frustrating when people watch it and only laughing at it you know like that's the kind of thing that gets to me because there's way more to it if you'll just open yourself a little more be a little more tuned in to what's going on in that build up to the final confrontation he has the axe fight he stops the van he impales the guy with his axe in the mouth you know, she burned bright. He tosses the, he throws that axe at the one kid. Yes. And then it has that great mm-hmm. silhouette. And then he has the chainsaw fight, the regular chainsaw versus the extra long chainsaw, which is in and of itself majesty. But then he gets that red church, the final confrontation. And it's not much of a confrontation. Like it almost feels like, I think we might've even been talking about when we were watching it or maybe when, the revi- when we did the revisited or maybe it was something else. Or maybe I'm just thinking about it now. It reminds me in a way of like the end of John Wick, right? Where it's like, you know, you get to this guy and he's supposed to have this like big confrontation. He's supposed to be like the most evil guy that you have to deal with, but he's sort of the, the most scared, vulnerable little guy to the point where he offers to suck Nick Cage's dick. He's like, I'll do anything as long as you don't kill me. He's like, you know, I'll suck your dick, I'll blow you, man, whatever. And just, guy, like, just have some self-respect for you. Like, he's such a pathetic character in this moment. It's not like you feel bad for killing him because he's he's a monster who killed Mandy. If you're if you were waiting this whole movie for Cage to have like this ultimate showdown against the cult leader, like that's not what it is. It's Cage has the ability to to offer mercy or get vengeance and he chooses vengeance. He literally squeezes the guy's head until it explodes. I got like almost a, a strange feeling of like memento when I watched the end of it this time and just in the sense that like don't believe his lies (laughs) it's a strange ending both movies you know you're not really sure what exactly is happening I guess but um just in the sense that like you know in that movie there's the guy bugging him the whole time right yeah he seems like so much more of a threat the whole movie but then you find out at the end which is really the beginning that this guy is a liar a fake a phony don't believe his lies like he's just he crumbles at the first line of questioning you know 
know, like he's yeah, it's just a facade, right? And like he's not strong enough to keep it up when he's confronted with a more sort of confident personality, I guess. And like Cage comes in there knowing exactly who he is, what's going on, what the stakes are, like where he is mentally and everything, and like he is not gonna budge, right? Like he is just stronger than this guy in every sense of the way. And dude just crumbles in front of him. Like he just throws away his entire persona and everything he thought he believed in himself as and is just like yeah man like I'll do anything to live like all it comes down to is don't kill me and and it's like well dude that's not gonna happen so tough shit man yeah I I knew ever since the scene where Mandy laughed him out of the room this guy was not going to be any match for Cage when he finally caught up with him he wasn't obviously but it was all done really well because like even Cage walking in there like for a brief moment he tries to do his whole grandiose like I am a tool of God or whatever Cage is just not buying it he realizes I'm your God now yeah yeah he realizes that pretty quick and it was very satisfying the way that played out. I mean, I knew it wasn't going to be some kind of epic hand-to-hand brawl to finish the movie, but it worked out great. I think this is the, the right time to talk about how when Nicolas Cage was approached to do this movie, he was asked to be the cult leader. And he said that he wanted to be red. He didn't want to be the cult leader. And the director said that it was a movie about old age versus youth. He didn't think that Cage was going to be the right part, the right guy to play red. And that was the end of the discussion. And then only later... When Elijah Wood, who he met doing the trust and who works with one of Mike's friends as a producer and like had, they had their own production stu- production studio together, they met again because of Elijah Wood and talked about, you know, the themes of love and loss. They decided that, you know, Cage was the right fit for Red. In a way, him as the cult leader would have been good. And, you know, a year or two ago when we saw Snowden, and he was a small role in that, and Mike and I were sort of like, we kind of wish he was these smaller parts of these, like, great characters, that he's, like, the best part of the movie that he's in, rather than being the lead in, like, bad movies, let him be sort of a supporting character in a better movie. Not that Snowden's great, but, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's this big-budget Hollywood, you know, studio movie. I think that if he had been the cult leader in this movie, it would have fed more into that, like, Oh, you got to see the movie where Cage is a crazy cult leader, man. Yeah. Like he just goes crazy yeah. in it. Yeah, definitely. Not that Red is a more seen character, but it's definitely a more complex and nuanced character. Mm-hmm. You know, like we we love seeing Keanu yeah. as the dream in the Bad Batch, like as his cult leader. Speaking of uh, acid, yeah, yeah. And I'd still love to see Cage as a cult leader, but I think that in this movie, the right part was Red because it's the it's the one with the depth and like I think it's just it's it's the right part for him the right part for this movie the right pairing. Who doesn't want to see a grizzled old man kick a lot of ass? Exactly. I mean, uh, except you know Death Wish. Nobody wants to see Death Wish. <laughs> well, they don't want to see Bruce Willis as Death Wish, but go check out Death Wish at least one in three with Bronson. Sure. Um, <laughs> they kind of got a guy. I feel like he's not. I don't think he's by any means playing this the way Cage ever would. But I kind of feel like he's got a bit of a of Cage's look to him. Like like a younger Cage in a sense. Like I could see he's still sort of going for that. I wonder if that was a bit of an intentional thing just to get some sort of like familiarity between the two of them to share some kind of recognition or if that's just something I'm picking up. But but I quite like the actor that they ended up getting to play this guy. 
and all I could kept think kept thinking about Joey when I heard that Cage was first offered the role of the acid eating guy was Acid Yellow Ooh, from Sunny. Yeah, and now he already played like a guy who tripped all day and partied all night. I guess you could say he was running his own. Well, he was running a brothel. He he, he was basically a pimp. But uh, I guess that's kind of like being a cult leader. <laughs> so very specific uh, but type of cult. All around, I think uh, the right choice for everyone here. The guy who played the cult leader, uh, Linus Roach. He played Thomas yes. Wayne in Batman Begins. Why do we fall, Bruce? He was in the Chronicles, the Chronicles of Riddick. He was in Nonstop. He was in this very artsy British film from the '90s called Priest which caused a lot of controversy because it was about a gay priest. He looks a little like Tom Hiddleston to me, Loki. Yeah. I, I, early on, I used to get them confused. I thought I thought he was in Chronicles of Riddick, not this he guy. Is, he is British. No, but they if you look at them side by side, as especially 10 years ago, they look like brothers, like Irish twins at that, like they were born very close together. The right-hand man of the cult leader is uh, he's an Irish actor. He uh, he's in Peaky Blinders, but he plays the Duke of Hell on Good Omens. That Neil Gaiman show? Yeah, it, it's not out yet, is it? I don't think so. Larson, do you have anything else to say about Mandy before we wrap up? I'll tell you what, I walked out of it in the theater and it gave me a lot to think about and I'm really, really glad I got to have this conversation especially with you guys. My fiance Alyssa and I have been talking about it a lot since we saw it. I really have grown to appreciate it so much more after having this conversation so thank you guys. Well, we're glad that we could welcome you back into the fold of Cage Club. Oh, it was great. It was so nice to be back. Hopefully we'll have you on for what we're following up because we have the Charlie Theron podcast which is wrapping up. We have, you know, as this episode comes out the same week, we are releasing Gringo. Then next week we're doing Tully. And then that's all the Charlize movies. So we're going to follow those up with two podcasts. So maybe you'll be on some of those episodes. We've got to have you sign up for some of those. Thank you for being on this. Mike, do you have anything else to say about Mandy that we didn't, that we, that you didn't mention either on our revisited episode or <laughs> yeah. so far in this episode? Any of the five podcasts you've recorded about this film? That we've been like, you know, we've been excitedly, or like on the Firebirds episode when we were excitedly <laughs> waiting for Mandy. Like any other possible thoughts in your brain? Because I think I am tapped out. But anything else bef- that you want to say before we wrap up? I mean, just that it's great. I loved it. I'm glad that it turned out great. You know, it would have just, you know, all that anticipation. Rarely do I feel like it pays off when I go see a movie these days, you know? I mean, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I have a great time at the movie theater and and seeing new stuff. But, like, this was one of those sort of things where it's like, I just really hope it was good and, and it really played to my sensibilities and stuff so I was really happy about that and so yeah I mean I just buy it on demand go check it out get it on Blu-ray when it comes out you know buy it October for October 30th soon it's coming out on Blu-ray soon show it to everyone you know I mean this is the this is the month it's October so throw a viewing party if you're having a Halloween party put it on in the background <laughs> I don't know Holy but shit, like man. yeah spread the word about it like not that it needs help not doesn't need our help I mean everyone from like you know, Edgar Wright to Steven Soderbergh are tweeting about this movie. So, like, that's that's cool to see also. So, I'm just glad Cage Awareness is up right now. <laughs> and, you know, hopefully people will poke around into his uh, filmography and find a lot of other stuff they didn't realize they, they actually might like. And, you know, discover a lot other, of other really great Cage performances. Because this is not the only one out there. I mean, just last year or so, there's, there's been a, like, that Army of One. It's a really nice performance in that. But, I mean, there's crazy, he's doing great stuff in lots 
lots of movies. The Trust, like, I feel like that's a really fun one with Elijah Wood. Go check that out. Cage Forever, six movies <laughs> in 10 months. You know, we haven't reviewed Teen Titans Go yet, but we'll get there very soon when it hits uh, home video. So, like, the guy's a machine. So I'm just, I'm just very happy he's out there doing his thing. And also, since the last time we recorded an episode, Between Worlds premiered at Fantastic Fest. Oh, so seven movies. Yeah, and I mean, well, I mean, if, if we're counting that this year, then we can't count Mom and Dad this year, so. We'll only count ones that got released on home video. But that should be out, I would, I would imagine, sometime next year. But it looks like next year, again, another six or seven or eight coming out. And there's maybe, maybe there's another one. I mean, Into the Spider-Verse, where he's Spider-Man Noir or whatever. That's right. That's going to come yeah. out this year, too. So, like, there's, there's more Cage to come. Uh, we will cover, as we do, every time that we can watch it on demand or Blu-ray or whatever, we do it then and try to get it, get it out as quickly as we possibly can. This time we waited a little bit longer because we're trying to get the, the right guest tonight. We found the perfect guest in Christian Larson. Go check out his 10 episodes of Monkey Club. Mike and I are on the first two, I think, that I'm on King Kong and you're on Planet of the Apes. So go check out those from a couple of years ago. They were a lot of fun. And for all things Cage Club and all the other shows on our network, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, and at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Go check out Bayman the Card Game on Kickstarter, B-E-H-M-E-N, like his character in Season of the Witch, the worst character. Cage's worst character. Yep. yep. Go check out but Bayman Foy. the Card Game on Kickstarter. And also go check out... By the way, Claire Foy from Unsane as the Witch in Season of the Witch. Oh. So go listen to that episode of Cinemakers, and then go listen to the Season of the Witch episode. And us say, who's this girl playing the witch? Yeah, we gotta... She's may- really good. Maybe we'll do that I in the next revisit, because I know you've again. been waiting to see that again, so maybe we'll do that. But also go check out John Rooney Etsy store for that you know the characters of Nick Cage go check out that poster and you know if you support us support the people who also love Cage the way that we do you know know, time is valuable money is valuable but you know these people are doing great things and uh I know I like them, so hopefully you will too. Do you want to uh, quickly just shout out New Show Alert? Oh, um, New Show Alert. We have X's yeah. for Podcasts and X-Men Experience. That is a show where Nico and a rotating gaggle of co-hosts will go through the X-Men comic books chronologically. Uh, they're starting with classic X-Men and uncanny X-Men. But they're also going to be covering like Captain Britain and the Champions and a whole bunch of other shows. So go to cageclub.me slash shows. Keep an eye out for there. There's 20 shows now. Just go to cageclub.me. Keep an eye out. There's lots of cool things as we say that cage doesn't i mean cage makes a whole ton of movies but you know it's not a weekly show anymore we do have to we do put out those revisited episodes every other week hopefully you watch those or listen to those along while watching movies i know larson larson what'd you what did you watch was it seeking justice yeah <laughs> no no oh god it was the one with january Wait, with January Jones wasn't in Seeking Justice. Yes, she was. Yeah, yes, she was. Okay, so it, it was. It was. <laughs> yes. You and that movie have a a, a, a long lineage. <laughs> well, I wanted to. I wanted to maybe start to see what you saw. And did you? It, it helped me a little. There we go. I'm not there yet. I think we watched that before the Rocky Marathon, Joey. If I don't know, but that was a while. Oh, ago. it might have been the night before. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah. every other Thursday, Cage Clipper visited. We'll have the Teen Titans go sometime. Episode sometime this year maybe spider-man this year maybe not i don't know probably early next year but just go to cageclub.me poke around mike and i have watch the throne coming out every friday we've got a cinemakers run to do later this year early next year starting two new shows that will alternate with each other on friday so anyway just there's there's literally hundreds and hundreds of shows i think we're close to 700 episodes now if not more than that i don't know but we're sort of closing in on a thousand you know we'll get there sometime next year so they're all free they'll always be free just go poke around, listen to it, say hi, mailbag at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. <laughs>
And I'm Mike Manti. And that was Christian Larson of the Monkey Club Podcast. And maybe something coming up. And we'll see you next time, probably for Teen Titans Go to the Movies, right here on Cage Club. <laughs>